dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing chapters 1 through 26 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah and Bingley. <laughs> I can still see his little nose. <laughs> uh, Bingley is very much a presence in today's episode. He's normally not this <laughs> glued to my side during recordings, but we're in a, we're in a new space. <laughs> I'm recording from my mom's closet. I feel like a true podcaster now that I've recorded an episode in a closet. And yes. uh, my dog's just not sure about what we're doing. So apologies for any um, any puppy-related noises over here. <laughs> well, I like to see his cute face. His snout is like right up on the laptop camera, too. He's so cute. Oh, goodness. Well, happy, very Victorian fall to Sarah and Bingley. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited for our Victorian fall it was somewhat unintentional as we were planning our season. The books that sounded good to us, the books that we wanted to read in spite of pregnancy brain and distractions, just happened to fall into this category. And I think it's going to be great to kind of build our discussions around this theme. So I'm super excited. Me too. I've become so much more of a seasonal reader since we started doing the podcast and organizing our classic reading around the seasons to fit a certain mood. And so Jane Eyre for our September pick was a lot of fun. I will say it was a little too hot for me <laughs> to fully enjoy <laughs> Jane Eyre. Oh, now Penny's going to make make herself known over here. Um, but I did get a couple of rainy days of reading in and that helped a lot. You've got to set the mood for this one. Absolutely. This is such a moody book. I mean, yeah, maybe more than any other book we've covered yet on on the podcast. It just has an aura about it that you <laughs> you want to fit your you want to fit your reading experience around that. And yeah, it was a little too hot for this read, but still I tried to make the most of it and, and, you know, read at night or read when it was raining, like you said. So I, I still got into it. So we've both read this one multiple times, I think in different contexts. What is your history with Jane Eyre? This is another one like Pride and Prejudice, where I'm not sure I remember the first time I read it. I think I read it in high school not as assigned reading, but just on my own. And then I've never, I think this is true. I don't think I have ever studied it in a class. However, I did teach it five or six times. So I, yeah. And I taught it to high school sophomores at an all girls school, which was a really interesting context to read this book in and definitely impacts the way I read it and think about it. 
which I'm sure we'll touch on throughout. But yeah, I've I've read it so many times. I kind of felt like I could do this episode without rereading it, but I like it, so I still reread it. <laughs> and I'm glad that I did because it is another one where every time you read it, you pull out some new things. And this reading experience was definitely different for me. So how about you? What's your previous experience? I'm excited to hear about what was different for you. I read Jane Eyre for the first time, maybe the summer after my freshman or sophomore year of college, just for fun. I had a copy sitting on my shelf for a really long time. I don't remember. I think I like swiped it off of my middle school (laughs) English teacher's shelf and nobody missed it and it stayed there and I never got into it. And then one of my college roommates said that she, she said, I read Jane Eyre every single summer. And it's like the book I read every summer. And I was like, okay, well, if it's your favorite book, I'm interested in reading it and seeing what all the fuss is about. So I read it and I found the experience to be really fun. It was really friendly. I feel like, um, I don't remember if I read it over summer. I might have, But I felt like for a classic, it was pretty fast paced and I, I, I really enjoyed that first reading experience. And then I read it three times in grad school. So I read it once for, I think, a general critical theory class, once for a British literature class or Victorian literature class, I can't remember, and then once to prepare for like my final uh, essay kind of project test capstone thing that I did for my program. So I have read Jane Eyre as a student quite a bit. So we have kind of flip-flopped experiences here, which is fun. Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for that because I want to hear about what you all talked about in your grad school level classes. I would really love to read and talk about Jane Eyre in in that context and getting to talk with you about it now is basically that. So (laughs) I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too, because as I was reading this time, I found myself not enjoying it as much as I did when it was in the context of a classroom. Okay, should we talk a little bit about this reading experience since we're both kind of hinting at it being a little bit different? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So... I'll go first. (laughs) Yes. I think that for me, I mean, I still, when I was reading, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this. I can't wait to talk about this. And I actually think I appreciated some of the childhood sections of this book more than I have in the past. Like I wasn't just Mm. rushing through them to get to the good stuff. I, I was like, interested in what Bronte was saying about childhood. And that's something I want to talk about today for sure. But I think since the last time I really read and taught this, between then and now, I've read a couple biographies of Charlotte Bronte and just learned a little bit more about her and she's a fascinating person. I I I don't want to say that like like learning things about her has made me like put off of her her writing. That's not it. Mm-hmm. But with learning more about her life, 
it's hard not to read Jane Eyre as kind of a an authorial wish fulfillment sort of book mm-hmm. <laughs> and really read her into the character of Jane and her crushes and desires into the romantic relationship. And I don't know, it just made me read the book kind of differently. Like instead of thinking about more of the structure and the symbolism and the commentary, I was more thinking of it as like a book that a woman was writing to like live out her romantic fantasies, which is totally fine. It's just different than how I have read it before. I actually really like that reading, probably as a romance reader, but also in terms of it being so incredibly subversive at the time. I mean, what could be more subversive than that? That's very true. It's it's very true. And yeah, I I think that maybe that was just like unsettling for me as a reader. And there are some of Mm -hmm. the some of the elements of how she writes about Jane versus other women bothers me which i think mm-hmm. we'll touch on more in our second episode when we really pose the question like is this a feminist text but i think that's a great point that that is extremely subversive and i think probably a lot of contemporary readers of jane Eyre felt some of that in this work and that's why this book in part um was quite scandalous at the time it is very I don't know, evocative of like female desire in a way that other books of the time period were not. It's so true. I just think that this is not, not the kind of book um, that I would go to for comfort. I know a lot of readers really love this book as a comforting novel. That's Jane Austen for me. That's something on the lighter side. I am not as much of a gothic Victorian reader. It's just not my style as much. And that is totally fine. I love Jane Eyre retellings. And we'll get to that again in part two a little bit more. Especially Jane Eyre retellings that don't take the text too seriously. But I think each time I read it, I hate Rochester more, which we'll definitely (laughs) talk about in this episode. But I... I also really liked the early chapters here in a different way. And I specifically love Helen Burns as a character. (laughs) She might be my favorite. Okay, I will definitely have to talk about that because (laughs) I find her so annoying. (laughs) She is. She is. But there's just one line in the book that makes me love her. And that's all I need. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. Okay, well, so well, let's let's get into to this book then, just as a little bit of of context. Um, when Charlotte Bronte first published this book, she published it under a pen name Kerr Bell, and her siblings, uh, her sisters, also published under pen names. I think it was Acton Bell, and I don't know something that starts with an E for Emily, and it was presumed for a while that they were all one person. There were debates about whether it was a man or or a woman. Um, So interesting. I I mean, learning about Charlotte Bronte's life is fascinating. I I would say don't let what I said at the start of the show (laughs) turn you off from from that. Um, 
We talked about this a little bit in our tips for reading Jane Eyre, but a lot of this book was inspired by Charlotte's own life. She went to a boarding school that was not her favorite experience, and two of her sisters died after catching an illness there. That very much impacts Jane Eyre. She worked as a as a governess and a teacher, so we see those elements of her life in this book as well. This novel caused quite a sensation when it was published, and it was partly criticized for being anti-religion and very scandalous. Of course, you mentioned that it speaks of feminine desire in just a way that that Victorian novels often hinted at, but I think it's just much more obvious in here. But it quickly gained popular acclaim and there were some favorable reviews. And that popular acclaim is something that always gets me because when we think about the classics and when we think about which books are going to be the classics that live on and on and on from here, you know, 50 years from now, what are we going to be reading and what's what's going to be a classic? I just find that conversation so interesting because I think we go to literary fiction. But uh, if we think about the popular books, I think 50 years from now, Dan Brown might very well be (laughs) on the top of the list of of a classic with The Da Vinci Code or one of his other books. So anyway, that's like very much a tangent. But thinking about books like Jane Eyre that were criticized in many ways, but they were really popular. They were popular because they're entertaining. I mean, this is an entertaining book and it's being scandalous at the time surely only made it fly off the shelves more. Oh, absolutely. And it and it's so true. Like this really was kind of like a popular work of genre fiction. Um, mm-hmm. And now here we are talking about it all these years later. So many schools read Jane Eyre, uh, both high schools and and colleges and grad school programs. Like it's a, one of those books that I think people acknowledge that it's worth revisiting because you can dig into it at so many, so many levels. So yeah, well, we have a lot to talk about today. We're talking about basically the first two thirds of the book, chapters one through 26. If your edition of Jane Eyre is divided into volumes, that would be the first two volumes. And a lot happens, but most importantly, I guess, we meet our narrator and protagonist, Jane Eyre. So let's talk a bit about the narrative style of this book and and Jane as narrator and character. Yeah, this is written like an autobiography and even down to the title. I mean, the title is Jane Eyre. You almost could imagine colon an autobiography or a memoir. I think it right is after. Jane Eyre colon an autobiography. Is I it? think that's how the first edition was published at least. Oh. And now I'm looking to see if it's in the front of my book anywhere. I'll have to look that up. I mean, it would totally make sense, but you can you can certainly imagine that and She is writing in this first-person narrative style. I think it's funny that you bring up the Charlotte Bronte biographies and how 
biographical this book is when you stack it up next to Charlotte's life and then you're thinking of her writing in the first person style there's there are just so many connections to be drawn but i i think one of the most fascinating things about this narration is that every now and then jane also kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit and directly addresses her reader so one example that i'm thinking of is in chapter 11 and she says a new chapter in a novel is something like a new scene in a play and when I draw up the curtain this time reader you must fancy you see a room in the George Inn at Millcote with such large figured papering on the walls as in rooms have and then she goes on to describe this but that direct address to the reader and that sort of narrative awareness is fascinating to me. And I I love that part of Jane's voice. I completely agree. That's one of my favorite aspects of this novel. It's it's not like, you know, post-modernist metafictional kind of breaking of the fourth wall, but you're right that we do get this acknowledgement that Jane, the character and narrator, is aware that she's telling a story, that she's crafting a story that She's choosing where she skips ahead or where she, um, you know, where she emphasizes her her narrative. And there's also this sense that she's, you know, looking back. Um, a lot of the moments where she talks about her childhood are in these very reflective adult kind of commentary. And I, I think that's so interesting. So we get to see Jane as a narrator and we get to know her pretty much through her perspective. Um, But uh, we learn so much about her from her actions and her early actions in the novel. And I'm curious to know what your relationship with Jane is. Do you like her? Is she one of your favorite literary heroines? Could you do without her? (laughs) I wouldn't say she's a favorite, but I I find her very intriguing and also slippery because I think that we want to and and this my mind does this as a reader go to her go to thinking of her as mousy and quiet and bookish and plain and she is described in all of those those ways but she's also described as like elf-like and a sprite. Like there's something a little bit fairy tale-like and off about her. And maybe most importantly, passionate. Like that's how the, the servants at uh, Mrs. Reed, Jane's aunt's house, describe Jane constantly. Like you're too passionate. You need to learn to control your emotions. And I think it's just a really interesting dichotomy that Bronte is setting up between this girl who really, in many ways, is described as extremely introverted and a wallflower and somebody who is very, very passionate and emotional and often overcome by her tempers and feelings. I think part of what makes her stand out in the literary canon of heroines that we have or what makes her memorable is that stubbornness, is that resistance. We know that she's in a cage in so many ways. You know, for one thing, all the bird imagery. <laughs> but, 
But she is caged in by her social position, by her being an orphan, by her being plain and not pretty. Later, by her being a governess, we see that she is caged in in so many ways by society, and yet she is constantly shaking the bars of that cage. And I think that we read a lot of books where we're dissatisfied with the way that the main character operates in their circumstances or operates in their society, in the historical context. But in this case, for the most part, we'll talk later on about some of the choices that Jane makes that we do or don't agree with. But for the most part, it's really satisfying to see a heroine who is, like I said, shaking the bars constantly and talking back and misbehaving and and not always necessarily beating herself up for it. Yeah, the the first kind of introduction we get to Jane really gets at that kind of dichotomy that those twofold elements. One is she's hiding in a window seat with a a book, trying to just have some peace and read and be left alone by her terrible family. And then her awful cousin comes in and starts berating her and eventually like throws a book really hard at her, like makes her stand still and just he's he's physically and emotionally abusive. And <laughs> she just lets out this torrent of, you know, hate filled speech right back at him, which I think is maybe not what you're expecting when you first read this book. Um, and it is it is great to see a character push back on the powers and the constraints of of her life. I think it's really satisfying. I still don't know that I would rank Jane too high up on my list of literary heroines. But that has more to do with maybe the second half of the novel than this. These early chapters are when I really, really like her and want to root for her. And so maybe that's why I like this first volume so much, even though it is dark and dismal because she's with this family who doesn't care much for her, like you said, is even abusive to her. And then she gets sent to a school where the abuse continues and it's just a terrible situation. And she finally makes a friend and then her friend dies. Yeah. yeah. It's dark. Yeah, it is so dark. I I want to hear your thoughts on on Helen um and Helen's death kind of caps off the childhood section of this book because then we flash forward and we see Jane as as a teacher at this school um so yeah what what do you think of Helen Burns what a name I know right names are so important in this book so, okay, Helen is pretty annoying because <laughs> she is really preachy. She's so preachy. Really preachy. I feel like she would fit right in with the March sisters. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes, she so would. But I also, I don't know, I think she's kind of funny too. And I like that we get to see these girls who, by all accounts, are good girls. Like, they're doing their best, but because they aren't 
pretty enough or because they make mistakes in, you know, small ways, they get severely punished for it. And you just see the unfairness really getting to them. And Helen really internalizes that and sort of turns inward and is always trying to better herself. And she is constantly um, berating herself for that and always thinking she's not good enough. Whereas Jane is like, screw this. (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) And I didn't do anything wrong. And it's the system that's messed up. And without Helen, we don't get that really important contrast. So I like Helen in that way, but also maybe I relate to her because I tend to internalize and beat myself up for things. And I would like to maybe be more of a Jane, but (laughs) I just have to say, um, when they first meet and Jane is just pummeling Helen with questions and Helen goes, you ask rather too many questions. I have given you answers enough for the present. Now I want to read. <laughs> Gives me life. I love that. <laughs> oh, that is a great line. I I completely agree with everything you said. I think where I struggle with Helen is I'm not convinced that the book is saying that Jane's way is superior. I I think maybe the book is suggesting there needs to be a balance, but sometimes it feels like the book is really on Team Helen (laughs) in these sections. And Helen is always like, you know, Jane, you just care too much what other people do to you and think of you. And some of those messages are, are good. And I really, I do like Helen's attitude towards forgiveness, which is that you should forgive other people for your own sake, because carrying around all of these um, grudges and all of these painful moments weighs you down. But some things I just don't think Jane should have to forgive. (laughs) And I, when we get into, you know, the, the later parts of the book, I will stand by that and feel like Jane should not have forgiven the way she did maybe that makes me a bad person (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so um I'm really curious to hear since we're talking about Helen and their experience at school you mentioned that what really stood out to you on this reading was some of the things Charlotte was saying about childhood and what it's like to be a young girl and so I'm really curious to hear what you picked up on well you touched on one of them already, which is just this acute sense of fairness that I think most kids have, where they are really perceiving what is unfair, what is unjust. And even if they don't have the language to verbalize it, they they see it and they really feel it. And I think she does a fantastic job of, of observing that and putting that into her characters. And one of the pieces of unfairness that I, I think is really <laughs> true and, and well painted in this book is how adults believe other adults before they believe children. And so Jane has all these experiences where because one adult doesn't like her, doesn't like the way she behaves, it poisons the minds of all the other 
adults around her and then they perceive her as mischievous and bad instead of someone who's trying her best and unfortunately I think that can be true like you think about just the way like like a kid can go through a school system and what one teacher tells the next teacher becomes that that way that child is perceived and I I thought that was really it was really emotional to read about and I really liked what she was hitting on with that oh that's so true And you can see just how, because we get to track Jane from an early age all the way into adulthood, you can see the way that she internalizes these messages that she's receiving from everyone and how it makes her see her place in the world and just see herself. And just the, it it reminds you, because I think it stands out as being kind of dramatic in the book, but really it's like, oh no, that is real life when everyone's like, well, if only Jane were a little bit prettier and then she would be better Yeah. or, you know, compared to this other girl who is going around lying all the time. Well, at least she's pretty. So she's more of an angel and you just see how easy it is for girls to get those messages from such an early age. And it's like I said, it seems dramatic in this book, but that's how it truly is. It's so true. And there's a great part where, and I'm not, I can't find the passage right now, but where she really reflects on how children have all of the same feelings as adults, but they don't have the reason to think through them or the, you know, logical skills to think through them or the vocabulary to vocalize them. And I I just think that is such a great reminder to us all and so true that it can feel so frustrating maybe to try and like interact with another with a tiny human (laughs) who has all of these feelings but can't think about them the way we do as adults and um yeah I just I really liked all of that this time around I thought that was was really well put and depicted in such an authentic way Maybe because the Bronte siblings were writing things down from such an early age and were using their imaginations all the time from that young age and that really carried over into their adult lives. Maybe that's why she just somehow really nails the childhood scenes and nails what it's like to be a kid in the world. Yeah, I I think that's that's a really great point. I think you're onto something there. So. Then we do get this this time jump. Jane goes from like 10 to uh, 10 or 11 to 18. And she'd been at the school, Lowood School, for six years as a student, two years as a teacher. So funny to think about 16-year-old girls (laughs) teaching other girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, that's, I mean, that's the way this worked. That happened all the time. And... She decides she's ready for an adventure. Her beloved favorite teacher, Miss Temple, leaves school to get married. And so she's like, nothing's keeping me here. I'm going to set out on my own. And she finds herself with an offer to be a governess at Thornfield Hall. 
great name. So many great names in this book. (laughs) It's true. And this governess position is really like the best possible thing she could hope for. Totally. It's, it's what she's qualified for. It's all that she can, it's all that she can get with her station in life. I mean, she possibly could have found a different school to go and be a schoolmistress somewhere, but this governess position is, is really, that's what she can do. She can go be a governess. And I, <laughs> speaking of annoying characters, uh, Adele bugs the crap out of me. Her charge. Yes. Her pupil. The little, the little French girl who honestly, like when you read the dialogue, speaks like someone pretending to be French. <laughs> I think a lot of Charlotte Bronte's like anti-French feelings come out in her writing of Adele. You almost think like every other line she's going to go, how you say? (laughs) And she does not speak like a child at all. It's so true. But like, frankly, she's the least interesting part about the whole the whole Thornfield thing, because there's just so much more going on. Jane being the governess and teaching this little girl, like that's that's part of the story, but it's certainly not the prominent thread. For that, we have the master of the house, Mr. Rochester. Yes. So, I mean, this is the, in many ways... The heart of the book, right? Jane meeting Rochester and their very complicated relationship and feelings for each other. And I think uh, we could say a lot about their first meeting. So when Jane first arrives at Thornfield, he's not there. He spends as much time as he possibly can away from Thornfield for reasons we will soon discover. (laughs) And... When they meet, it's Jane is on her way to or from the the village nearby, and she crosses paths with with him and spooks his horse, and he's thrown from his horse. And he kind of, you know, curses her and calls her like, he's often calling her like an elf and a sprite or all all of these interesting terms of endearment. And... I think that scene is really interesting because I think we could read it symbolically as, you know, what's to come, both in terms of this sort of foreshadowing of disaster, but also of Jane, this like, you know, poor, obscure, plain and little, as she describes herself, woman kind of taking down in some ways this this great man, like putting them literally on a level playing field, whereas he had first met her riding, you know, on his horse. And then, you know, he ends up kind of having to lean on on her as they make their way back, back to his house. Yeah. And it's one of those where, like, they don't realize who the other person is right uh-huh. away, which I love that. I'm kind of a sucker for that. I think that's such a fun narrative device. It's It's fun here. But yeah, I mean, I think that you can totally read into the foreshadowing of that meeting. And that's a great way to read the scene. And 
I, yeah, from there, um, he's kind of this mysterious figure, but we pretty quickly learn that he is, I don't know, how do we want to describe Mr. Rochester? Like he, ugly. He's brooding. <laughs> yeah. Which is- he is, yeah, he's described as ugly, which is interesting. Yes. Brooding is, is a great word for him as well. Um, he's, he's volatile, I think is mm-hmm. one of the, and capricious. Is that how you say that word? <laughs> like, yeah, he is, um, you know, hot one minute and, and cold the next. He is constantly wanting Jane around and then will kind of dismiss her or berate her when, when she is around. Um, he, just he's yeah broody and and moody and I um you sent me an article that we're going to be talking about a little bit more with our patrons in in our class but I had to read this (laughs) quote from it um (laughs) Edward Fairfax Rochester is boorish and brutal. He engages his 18-year-old employee in work talk that is the 19th century version of Me Too employment investigation fodder, which is so true. <laughs> he just like yeah. sits her and, and he's much older than than her, which is very important. But yeah, he he like sits her down and kind of berates her and criticizes her and um it's very like pickup artist culture kind of stuff where it's like gives her a tiny bit of a compliment and then lists a bunch of her faults or compares her negatively to other women. It is, it's so odd. I was thinking about that, especially after reading that line in the article and how this is one of those books that when we read from a modern lens it's it's really hard to see it as romantic in any in any way but i don't know if it would have been that much different reading it in the victorian era because especially say you're a governess who picks this book up you know better than anybody what your plight is and how dangerous that father or ward um or not ward but um, what would be the word for, for that? Benefactor? Yeah. How dangerous these men are walking around with full power over you. Totally. And how, pre- yeah, just how precarious your position is, how easy it is to be abused sexually, psychologically. I mean, I, I think that Me Too reading is really, like, it stands out today. But I also think that for many readers, that I I wonder how they would have read this relationship. Um, If it would have been thought of as romantic back then, either. And I also think that age difference would have been pretty shocking back then. I completely agree. And and I think that's a really important point. I, I don't think that... I don't think that a reading of, well, all of this would have been like not only normal, but swoon worthy in and of its time. I don't think that is true. I do think that this is Charlotte Bronte's kind of kink. Like, I think that 
this is the romantic relationship <laughs> that she fantasized about because she she you know had older men and men in positions of power over her unavailable men who she fell hard for and i i think that we that's where we see like you know i i, I don't know if she would intend if she, of course it's impossible to know what she intended i don't know if she intended this book to be romantic to everyone or would be under the presumption that other women would find this relationship romantic. But I think it speaks a little bit to her, her own personal desires. And I don't want to kink shame anyone, not even Charlotte (laughs) Bronte. (laughs) And I will say, so I read quite a bit of historical romance and there are a lot of books about a governess who goes to say like a widower and ends up being his employee and they're the ones who fall in love. And that is fraught with peril. Now, writers writing this uh, governess romance have ways of going about it that they really toe the line of acceptability (laughs) in modern society because they're they're writing as modern writers writing about the past. Um, but some of my favorite romance books have that trope. So I I don't want to discount it as um, being spicy and intriguing. But um, yeah, but Rochester is, he's not, he's certainly not a romantic lead that like gives me goosebumps or anything. No, <laughs> definitely not. And I, I really enjoyed reading this with teenagers because at least in my experience like very few of them were rooting for this relationship mm-hmm. and i i mean and i know that there are many readers who do find this book romantic and i don't want to shame that either um i i think that you, you know there are so many ways to read any book and this one included but that was always just so kind of interesting to me, like what they would notice about this relationship and the power imbalance. And um, so then I, I think that once the relationship becomes solidified for a couple of chapters <laughs> before it falls apart, um, we we are left with a lot of complicated feelings. And I think that Charlotte Bronte does that really well because we want Jane to have what she wants we we're rooting for her but we're just like a little unsure if this is the right move and i i think that is a great way to set up the the conflict in this book and to kind of pull the reader in different directions i agree and i think that we'll probably talk about power as it relates to romance and marriage in part 2 um, but I think, I think that the very end of the novel, uh, gives us a lot to consider about power and what Charlotte might have been thinking, like, is her romantic ideal or, or what it would take for her to have exactly what she wants. Um, and I, I am saying Charlotte, not Jane, cause I agree <laughs> with, I do agree with you about some of that fantasy fulfillment. Um, and I also like there are some 
scenes in here where it really does seem like Charlotte Bronte is exploring love mm-hmm. and and what it means for marriage. So there are a couple of chapters where Rochester is seemingly looking for a wife. There's a lot of commentary around his freedom to marry whoever he wants to. And if he's a man and he has the freedom to marry whoever he wants to, why doesn't he marry for love instead of marrying for money and connections? Um, And then there's commentary further on when Jane is saying, you know, that she, she only wants to marry for love and like a very specific passionate kind of love. Um, I just think there are some, some really interesting scenes and there's some interesting commentary on the, the love and marriage situation of not just um, Victorian England, but just love in general and how relationships function. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, Rochester basically is pursuing another woman, Blanche Ingram, beautiful Blanche to make Jane jealous, which totally works. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and, I, I will say that while I think that the the book and Charlotte Bronte think that that like power imbalance between Rochester and Jane is sexy and that that is like where a lot of the the you know there are always these scenes where they're around fires and like it's just supposed to be kind of mm-hmm. like smoldering and steamy and about desire she balances that with the idea that Jane does want equality in a relationship in, in her own way. So she finds the the power imbalance sexy, I think. But when she's talking to Rochester about their relationship and, you know, where they stand with each other, she says that, you know, God sees them as equals. Like they, they they're equals before, before God. And in the spiritual way, they're, they're equal on equal footing. And I think that's kind of cool. Like that, you know, she is, even though there's so much power imbalance in every aspect of their relationship to her in a way that really matters and is important, which is spiritually, she's looking for equality. She also insists once she, I mean, we should, we could get a little bit more specific into that wild proposal scene but after (laughs) jane agrees to marry rochester she says she wants still wants to stay adele's governess and get paid 30 pounds a year which is pretty awesome because she knows that she needs to be somewhat independent and have her own money and that's pretty radical too yeah and i'm thinking the the only relationships that she's seen, she was pretty young when she was orphaned. Um, so we don't really know what her parents' relationship was like, but we do know she goes to live with the Reed family and Mr. Reed died and left Mrs. Reed. And they, they had this fortune, but um, I have to wonder if just like seeing that relationship and seeing what happens to women is part of what what Jane was thinking there when she was like I've got to have have my own funds and my own money and make sure that everything everything goes well because as John Reed always liked to get in her face about 
He was the heir. He was the man of the house. He outranked his own mother. Mm -hmm. So if Jane has a son, I feel like she's (laughs) like, well, I'm not having my little shit son (laughs) take over this place. Thornfield is mine. (laughs) I'm going to have some money. (laughs) That's such a good point. Yeah. I, I think that's so, so true. And it's, I, I like that, you know, the book doesn't kind of hit us over the head with those ideas, but it's just so, so obvious why a character like Jane would feel the need to hang on to that, that little bit of independence. So you brought up fire And I think that we should talk about some of the creepy elements of this book because we've talked a whole lot about it being a gothic novel in the lead up to our very Victorian fall. And we talked about Thornfield being this really intriguing setting, but we haven't really gotten to the gothicness of it all. Yeah. Well, I always think it's interesting. Every time I read this book, I try to read that scene in the red room, which I think is just like the second chapter, really carefully, because I never quite know what to make of that scene. This is when Jane, little Jane, is being punished. She's locked into basically a guest bedroom, and it's called the red room because it's all decorated in red, and she sees her uncle's ghost or some sort of phantom and she screams and passes out and um it's kind of boiled down to oh jane you're so passionate but i i always wonder what work that chapter is doing in the novel i think in part it is setting us up for a gothic tone maybe it's also suggesting to us that jane is because she's so passionate is inclined to see these sorts of supernatural things, whether they're in her head or not. And that comes into play when she gets to Thornfield. But I mean, that I, that red room scene is like our first moment of the Gothic in this book. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point about setting up Jane to be sort of passionate and almost as an unreliable narrator yeah. so that the mystery is stronger mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. I think in addition to reading this as a gothic novel, you can read it as domestic suspense. Mm -hmm. And if you think about all the domestic suspense books, this is where we're going to get into spoilers, everyone. So heads up. Um, Because we got to go there as we talk about the gothic elements. But you think about all of the domestic suspense novels that are like my husband's other wife. His secret (laughs) wife. The other wife who supposedly died. (laughs) Like... It's almost every single one. There's double wives. Yeah. And so I really think that Jane Eyre serves as like that domestic suspense root of the genre growing out of that, as well as the gothic novel. Um, And so I can totally see where that scene would set her up as a little bit unreliable so that we we have more of a mystery to solve later on. Mm. Oh, and that's a great connection to all of the... All of the narrators of those domestic suspense novels. I, I love that idea. Um, and then, of, of course, we get really heavily into the Gothic when she gets to Thornfield. It's called Thornfield, <laughs> which, you know, just has this this connotation of, of danger and claustrophobia. 
And on her first like touring of the house, she hears a, a mirthless, creepy laughter. And that laughter really kind of haunts her whole time there. It's dismissed as being, you know, the laughter of one of the servants, Grace Poole. And Jane believes that, but is also like, why does he keep employing this woman who seems to do nothing and just drink and laugh? Um, but I I love that the kind of haunting sound of the house is that laughter. It's not screams or um, any kind of violent sounds. But it's much more creepy, that uncanny laughter. It is. A, it. Oh, gosh. I think the more I read this, the less creepy it gets because I know totally. yeah. <laughs> what's happening. But thinking about someone reading Jane Eyre for the first time and getting all of those gothic elements and, and the laughter and knowing that something eerie is going on in the house and hearing noises in a creepy house is just such a tenant of the gothic that it's just, it's perfect. And then, yeah, I mean, we, we, see that it's blamed on Grace Poole, but that reveal, I mean, that's maybe one of my favorite parts of the book too, is the reveal that someone is in the attic and that someone is Mr. Rochester's wife, Bertha. It, it's such a good reveal. And I, I like the, like, the kind of slow build and then all at once, because we've gotten the fact that Mr. Mason, who we later learn is Bertha's brother, has come to visit and he's attacked by by Bertha. And then we get the really gothic scene of Jane waking in the middle of the night, the night before her wedding, seeing a person in her bedroom who she's never seen before, put her veil on and then rip the veil into. So creepy. creepy. And the the like, you know, doppelgangers and that doubling is a really important element of, of Gothic novels. So to see like an alternate bride the night before her wedding is, is just so, so perfect. And then, when all is revealed and Rochester is like, fine, you're right. I I do have a wife. Let me show her to you. And takes them up to the attic. Yeah. There's just, it's so intense. It is. And it, it it's weird to say that this is my favorite part of the novel, but I mean, it is in large part the climax. It's fast paced. It's creepy. It's just infamous. I mean, and there's, here's probably why it's my favorite. There is so much to analyze and so much to talk about with Bertha. A seemingly small part of this book. I mean, she really only takes up a couple chapters. It's so true. I mean, in terms of how many pages and sentences she gets, it's so minor. But of course, this is the thing people take away from Jane Eyre is that the mad woman in the attic. 
There's a whole like thousand page book of literary theory called The Mad Woman in the Attic, um, all about Bertha when there are so few real descriptions of her. Yeah, I wonder if you compiled all of the literary criticism on Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. How many of these articles are about Bertha and how many are about Mm -hmm. Jane? I have to think that Bertha outnumbers Jane. I would think because I think even if you're writing about Jane, you can't not acknowledge Bertha. Yeah. So we will talk about Bertha much more in depth in our feminist theory class. So we'll be talking about her a lot more, and I'm sure she'll come up in our book club discussion on Patreon quite a bit as well. So we want to save plenty to talk about for that, but there are some different readings of her character, and there are some different ways to look at Bertha that we definitely wanted to talk about today. And we've already been framing it in this way because we started talking about her when we started talking about the Gothic and so this, this mysterious reveal, this secret, and, and this mad woman, I think that that madness, that mental illness piece um, also is very gothic, the, the psychological. Um, it, it all wraps into that gothic tone of, of the book. Um, but it also kind of serves as this fairy tale-esque gothicness. Um, if you listened to our episode on Angela Carter, we started talking quite a bit about Jane Eyre in that episode mm-hmm. when we talked about the Bloody Chamber. Yeah, yeah. Both of those, both of these stories, the Bloody Chamber and Jane Eyre, have roots in the the Bluebeard fairy tale, which is not a fairy tale that is particularly like popular in in American culture, it has not been made into a Disney movie, (laughs) Um, but it is a story about a young bride who discovers the bodies of her husband's previous wives locked in closets. And Jane actually directly references Bluebeard's castle when she's first exploring Thornfield. So, so yes, I mean, to find the the living body of of Rochester's wife locked behind a door is very much in line with this book being inspired by various fairy tales, but with a very dark gothic twist. Not that that fairy tale isn't just dark in and of itself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is another way to read this, and it requires a little bit more broad historical context, I think, for what would have happened to Bertha had she not been locked up. And that is that you could read Rochester as being sort of benevolent towards her or sparing her from a worse fate. Um, The reason I say you need more historical context for this is it sounds, sounds outrageous, right? But if you think about if she would have been taken to an insane asylum, Um, I think things would have been much, much worse for her. When you read about what the Victorians did to people who were suffering from any kind of mental ailment, um, 
it would have been really bad. She would have been tortured far worse than than being locked up in the attic. So uh, as much as I think it's easy to resist that reading, um, like I said, with the historical context, it's hard not to at least give it its due. Yeah, there's definitely some truth to it. And I think we can still resist it by, you know, thinking about ways Rochester could have treated her better, (laughs) of course. Um, And I think there's, of course, the element of, well, he clearly in part was keeping her at home and hidden so that he could continue to live his life the way he wanted to. So, So there's not I don't think we're at all suggesting that there's a selflessness to his choice not to institutionalize her. But I do think that context is is important because there he didn't have a lot of choices. He couldn't divorce her. You in in England, you couldn't uh, divorce somebody who was um, like incapacitated, basically. So, yeah, I, I think I think. That is important to acknowledge. And then if you readers, listeners want to completely dismiss that, that's also fine. But I think I think that reading is a good one to acknowledge. Let's talk a little bit about the psychoanalytic lens here and what Bertha might actually represent. I think her location of being in the attic is really fascinating. Um, I I think that this closely ties to the Gothic reading, um, but I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on this lens for Bertha. This is one of my favorite ways to talk about the novel. I think that it's important not to just read the book this way, and we'll touch on that when we think about a post-colonial way to read Bertha, but... A lot of feminist thinkers and scholars read Bertha as basically the repressed aspects of Jane's character. So in Gothic literature, in Victorian literature, and beyond, we can read houses as as symbolic of the mind. And the things that get buried, either pushed away into an attic or a cellar, um, can represent repression, the things that we refuse to acknowledge to ourselves about ourselves. And because we know that Jane has been so described as as passionate and emotional and fiery, to then have her presented as a foil to Bertha, where now Jane is this kind of pure, angelic Englishwoman, and Bertha is the animalistic, fiery, literally fiery, lustful, carnal woman. I think the reading very much is there that Bertha represents those aspects of Jane that she's buried, that she refuses to acknowledge because they're not appropriate for the English Victorian society that she lives in. That brings us to another important reading, 
which I think is maybe one of the more popular ones today, the post-colonial reading of Bertha. So as you said, her contrast with Jane um, can be brought up under this lens where we have Jane as the pale, very white, um, more um, buttoned up a British woman. And then we have Bertha, who is described as having darker skin, dark hair. We learn later that she is Creole woman. And um, this exoticism that surrounds her is just really important to examine under the post-colonial lens and what it means to have these two contrasting characters, what it means to cast Bertha in that light and to have her be the mad woman. Um, and I, I think there's a lot more that we can get into with the post-colonial lens as far as what Bertha might represent and what like locking her away might represent in terms of um, the British role in the world and in terms of colonization in general. The Victorian era was a huge time of colonization. I mean, just huge. So this is another one where historical context comes into play in a big way. Yeah, and and I think that's largely why it's dangerous to read Bertha's character through any of these other lenses without also acknowledging the post-colonial and racial elements of of the book because I I don't think it's fair to just say, well Bertha just represents another aspect of Jane's womanhood and just kind of hand wave the the context because she's deliberately described as as dark uh as you said we learned that she's creole those are intentional choices that Bronte's making and i think something that we as readers need to to reckon with and acknowledge i am just going to put in a plug here for if you have not read Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys, I highly recommend it. Have you read it, Chelsea? Not yet. I meant to read it before we got to Jane Eyre because it's been on my TBR list forever and ever. And then I just never got around to it. But I know it's more of a novella, so I really don't have much of an excuse. Well, it it is shorter, but it is dense. I, I think it takes quite a while to get into. And it also... You know, it was written in the 1960s. It has much more of like a postmodernist structure and um, definitely some like stream of consciousness. So even though it's a novella, it's not a quick, easy read. So I I think, you know, listeners be prepared for that because it is so true when you pick up a slim book, you're like, oh, I'll just fly through this. That was not my experience with Wide Sargasso Sea. But this is a book a retelling of Jane Eyre through Bertha's perspective and really thinking about what would it have been like for a young, vibrant, beautiful Creole woman to be taken to this repressive, buttoned up, Mm -hmm. 
British Victorian society and and not just the society, but we know what kind of character Edward Rochester is. He's mm-hmm. he's cruel and volatile and likes to point out people's faults and and how Bertha, whose name in uh, White Sargassus is Antoinette. That's the that's her middle name in Jane Eyre. And um, she's given that that name in White Sargassus. Um, how this fate might have happened to her because of systemic issues and because of Rochester as a character. And it's just really, really well done. I mean, there's tons you could read academically, scholarly, nonfiction commentary about Bertha as a character that also gets at that. But if you're looking for a work of fiction that really does some of this post-colonial examination of Bertha as a character, White Sargasso Sea is just, it's a must read for that. I think we can call that your pick of the week. That's my pick of the week. (laughs) (laughs) We, yeah, we have to stop here so that we don't get into any further chapters. We'll be back with part two on September 21st. I will toss out a quick pick of the week. If you are reading Jane Eyre along with us and you just can't get enough Charlotte Bronte content, there is a series called On Air, Air Like Jane Eyre, from The Rom Pod, and they are doing a chapter-by-chapter reading. So they have really broken it down much further than we have. Um, And if you're interested in getting some more in-depth commentary, that would be a really fun one to listen to. I haven't tuned in yet because I really wanted to record our episodes first and just make sure that we were bringing fresh ideas to the podcast. But I think that I'll probably pop in, maybe not for every single episode, but just for select chapters to see what the Rompod hosts have to say about Jane Aaron, which insights they're bringing up. Because, of course, in a two-part series. We can only talk about so much. Yeah, I know. There's so much we didn't get to touch on, and I have been doing the same. I haven't listened yet, but I cannot wait to listen to On Air from from the Robin Pod after we finish recording our episodes. Another great way to dive even deeper into Jane Eyre this month is to join us on Patreon. So, We lovingly call our Patreon community our Classics Club. We have two tiers. There's a $5 Literature Lover tier and an $8 Literature Scholar tier. For $5, you get access to bonus episodes, including some episodes where we'll go a little bit more into some Victorian Gothic Bronte content. But at the $8 tier, you get access to one class and a book club every single month. And in September, our class will be on feminist literary theory, looking particularly on how we can apply that to a reading of Jane Eyre. This class is going to be so fantastic. That class will meet on Wednesday, September 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern. However, these classes are recorded, which means that if you can't make it at that time, you can go back and watch it at your convenience. It also means that if you sign up in September, you can go back and watch all of the classes we have already recorded and live on our Patreon feed. 
We can't wait to hear your thoughts on part one of Jane Eyre, however you would like to share those with us. A great way to do that is to connect with us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod and tag us in your book review photos or send us a message or tag us in your stories to tell us that you are listening and share all of your Jane Eyre thoughts. Another great way to connect with us is to go to novelpairings.substack.com. This is our weekly newsletter, and we like to send out bonus links, a peek at what we're reading lately, and just more content that helps you get the most out of your classic reading experience. So again, go to novelpairings.substack.com to find our weekly newsletter. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an episode on raising readers with special guest Anne Vogel. And be sure to join us on September 21st for part two of our Jane Eyre discussion, which will include our pairings. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.